0: So let's think about kingdom pushback for a moment, if we may. Kingdom pushback. What I mean by that is, is this, the resistance that comes, the resistance that comes to God and His rule and His reign as He is asserting and reasserting His rule and His reign in this world, the pushback that comes in the face of that, the resistance that comes in the face of that. That is, is something that has come throughout the ages in different ways, all kinds of different ways, uh, throughout the ages, throughout this world, all over this globe, in so many different fronts and so, so many different levels and so many different expressions, kingdom resistance. Let me give you an example. Some of you may be familiar with this if you've read much of the, the Old Testament uh, narratives in history. So it was 445 B.C., and the refugees... The, the, the Jewish refugees from Israel are returning from the exile in Babylon, okay? And Nehemiah is going about the, the, the process of, of the difficult job of leading the people and rebuilding the walls there in Jerusalem. Well, the natives, these, if you will, new natives uh, there that have uh, implanted themselves and settled into that area in the time of, of the exile, these folks... The Samaritans don't see too well, they're not too crazy. let's just put it that way, about these refugees coming back, reasserting themselves, rebuilding this wall, rebuilding this city and, and all of these things. And you can see some of this in the history, as reflected here in Nehemiah chapter four verses one to three. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. You can hear the mockery. You can hear the mockery. You can hear the hostility. It's, pretty, it's, it's nothing subtle about it whatsoever. It's really in your face. Now, that's an example recorded for us of kingdom resistance, of a, of a pushback that comes when God's reign and rule asserts itself, reasserts itself in this fallen, broken world. But friends, please understand, that sort of resistance, that sort of pushback is not just isolated to the stuff of history books or on large-scale movements, you know, something like exiles returning, these refugees. No, no. Yes, of course you read about it in history. And yes, of course it takes place on the large-scale movements. But it also takes place now and to varying degrees in every one of our individual lives if we are, in fact, disciples of Jesus. Every one of us will experience something of the dynamic of kingdom resistance around us and within us. Around us and within us, and we must be prepared for that. We must understand that and be prepared for that. Well, we're going to push on in this little series here through these songs of ascent. Psalm 120 through 134, 120 through 134. We are in the fourth one. Psalm 123. Psalm 123 is our text this morning. It's just four verses. Oh, how helpful. This passage is, though, don't let its brevity fool you. Uh, Psalm 123, hear now the word of God. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Well, can we pray for just a moment? Lord Jesus, You know very well what it is to be the object of scorn, the subject of contempt. You know it very well. You endured it on our behalf to the uttermost, to the uttermost in ways we, can, we cannot really imagine and envision. We thank you that you know. We thank you that you are with us. We thank You that You ultimately are the the author and the singer of this song. We ask that You would help us as Your followers, Your disciples, those who would be called Christians to understand something more of what this means. We ask that You would make us into Psalm 123 people. We pray that You would be at work in our hearts right now, whether we're at home watching this being streamed, or if we're right here in the sanctuary, whatever the case, whatever the case, oh, that you would be at work in our hearts now. Meet us, we pray. Work in us, we pray. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray in your name. Amen. D-Day, perhaps the most climactic day of the 20th century. D-Day, it was the Allied invasion of France, that therein uh, secured a beachhead in Europe and therein ensured in time uh, the defeat of the German war machine and the surrender eventually of a dictator, a tyrant by the name of Adolf Hitler. D-Day was the coordinated landing of the U.S. forces, the British forces, the Canadian forces, others, uh, others as well. It was a remarkable effort. The coordination Involved in this is just mind-boggling, air, land, and sea, and more than important than any of that, the impressiveness of you know the coordination and all the efforts, and all the parties involved. More important than all of that is the fact it worked. The fact that it was in the end a triumphant success. D-Day, June 6, nineteen forty-four. V-E Day, however. Did not come until May 8th, 1945. That's 336 days in between. It was not immediate. It was not immediate. There was a lot left to do, a lot left to suffer and endure. You see, the the Allied march, rapid as it was into Europe, the pace of that could not be sustained and so that allowed the german army to regroup and that then set in motion what we know today as the battle of the bulge a counteroffensive in the winter of that year that was tremendously costly to both sides to both sides the point being simply this that though d day certainly did establish the toehold the beachhead and really sealed the doom for hitler and the german war machine The German army was not finished. Hitler was anything but ready to concede defeat. There was much opposition that lay in front of the Allied forces. Much opposition. The gospel message, the core of the gospel message, as Jesus himself says in the Gospels, it is the message, the good news of the coming of the king and His kingdom. It is a counter-offensive. It is a counterinsurgency. It is a retaking, a reclaiming, and a renewing of all that is rightfully His. But it does not come all at once. It does not come all at once. And Psalm 123 helps us to live in that tension, to live in the time, if you will, between D-Day and V-E-Day between the first and the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Ultimately, that's what Psalm 123 is about, even in that time before the first coming of Jesus. That's ultimately what this psalm is about. We should expect opposition to the gospel. That's what this is pointing us towards. We should expect opposition to the gospel. That said, our response must be shaped by the gospel. It's the message of the psalm. We should expect opposition to the gospel, but our response to that opposition must be shaped by the gospel. What does the gospel-shaped response to opposition look like? What does this psalm have to tell us along those lines? With these three things, if you have the outline, you can uh, see it there and follow along with these three points. The first being it shows us the struggle with contempt. The struggle with contempt. We'll unpack these as we go. The second thing being the stance of the servant, the stance of the servant. And then thirdly, the need for mercy, the need for mercy. Such richness here in this text, and we just need to take a few minutes to go through it together. So the first thing being the struggle with contempt. Again, this is the fourth of these songs of ascents, these songs that was a collection of psalms that was put together so that the pilgrims, these Jewish pilgrims, Pilgrims, as they're making their way north, south, east, and west from various points of the compass up to Jerusalem for these annual feasts. This was a compilation of songs for them to sing, for them to express something of their hearts along the way, and at the same time for their hearts to be shaped, to be shaped along the way as well. This is the fourth of these, okay? Now, clearly, what you can see, it's not even implied. It's not even an. It's not. It's not just implicit. It's explicit. This journey, this pilgrimage, was not easy. Though the destination is glorious and and so longed for, the journey, the pilgrimage, is not easy. It's not just as bad enough. It's not just that the terrain is treacherous. It's not just that you can lose your footing and the sun is hot and all these things. But sometimes the. The reception can be hostile as you're making your way along the path on this pilgrimage. And we see that here in verses 3 through 4 quite clearly. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, we, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is speaking to the simple reality. A simple reality of this contempt and this scorn, this derision and disdain that they were experiencing. Twice, in fact, it said, we have had enough. We have had, in fact, more than enough. We are sated. We've had our fill of this treatment, and we can take no more. No more. The, the, the poetic emphasis and repetition is meant for us to understand that. Now, where did it come from? Well, it's actually not spoken here. It's not actually said. We we don't know. Was it, was it from indifferent Gentiles there in the in the land? Was it from impious, unfaithful Israelites? That's possible as well, but the text doesn't actually say. But in any case, the wounds were felt. The harm was done. The hurt was deep. It's the reality of the the struggle with the scorn and the contempt. But where does this come from? What's the reason behind it? Well, you can get a sense of that just in looking at the text, looking at the text, it speaks of coming from those, this derision, the scorn of those who are at ease, who have not a care in this world for anything and anyone, for the proud, we might go so far as to say the, the, the arrogant, and the, the idea here being that uh, though these folks, these individuals, think themselves to be free, in the Lord's sight they are fools, They are fools. And the deeper roots of such scorn, of such derision, of such contempt, of of individuals described in this way who are self-directed and self-defined and self-dependent, as they are heaping their scorn and derision and contempt upon the people of God, ultimately what's behind that is their scorn and Derision and contempt for God Himself, for God Himself. and there's, This is nothing new. This is nothing novel, this kind of teaching found in, in the Scriptures. If you want to just keep your thumb there in the Psalm, Psalm uh, 123, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. It's a text in Matthew 5, the beginning of what we oftentimes refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's those first uh, dozen verses or so are referred to as the Beatitudes. And there at the very, very end. This is what we read. who were before you. So what we can learn here from the start is that an integral, significant, vital part of understanding what is a gospel response to opposition, opposition to the gospel, is recognizing and reckoning with the struggle with contempt, what it is and where it comes from, what it is and where it comes from. Or if I can just put it this way, you have to know what's in front of us in order to navigate around it. You have to know what's in front of you in order to properly navigate around it. So think with me, if you're commanding an ocean-going vessel of some kind and you're at the far north or the far south of the poles, cold waters, and you see some ice sticking up out of the water in the horizon ahead of you, it would be good for you to know that some 90% of the iceberg is below the waterline. It would be good for you to know that, vital for you to know that. Knowing how to navigate requires that we know something of the thing in front of us. We have to know something of the contempt, of the scorn, of the deeper dynamics in play here, where it comes from, why it hurts, and what it is. One thing that's well worth thinking about in terms of applying this and uh, where we go with this, say, come Monday morning, is we think about where ultimately this is from and who this is ultimately directed towards. Now, I'm assuming, by the way, just a quick caveat, I'm assuming, by the way, that we're not deserving of such derision and scorn. I'm assuming that actually it's, it's in, in, to some degree unjust for us to be treated and spoken to this way. Okay, that's the assumption I'm making. And in such cases, here's what you can know, or you're exempt from that. Here's what you can know. This is not about you. This is not about you. Now, I know that's really humbling. I thought it was about me. I thought everything was about me. No. That scorn, that contempt, that derision, again, if ultimately its, its target is not you, but the God who is behind you, who is over you, with you, then ultimately what does that mean? It is not, it is not about you. That, that is so humbling. It is also so freeing. So freeing. So clarifying. And so focusing for our prayerful response to such contempt. Again, we, we've got to know, we, we should know, that we surely will face opposition to the gospel, but that our response has to be shaped. It has to be shaped by the gospel. That's the first point. Well, coming, to, just flowing right out of that, this is something regarding not just our stance towards, if I can put it this way, the other party but something that has to do with our stance towards the Lord. Our stance towards the Lord in the midst of that opposition as well. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2 now. The stance of a servant. Verses 1 and 2. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who enthrone, are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy Upon us So what do we learn here? This stance of the servant in the midst of facing gospel opposition? Well, it begins with this: not presuming. Think about a servant, or the maidservant. you hear the imagery here. It is not presuming, not presuming upon his promises. Yes, he has promised to hear our prayer. I mean, that's why we have these psalms, right? That's their songs that are their prayers at the same time. We're being encouraged to pray in this way, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the pain. Yes, yes, we are assured. We are assured that He hears us. We are given such rich promises, but we must never take and 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 uh, it can be so subtle. We don't even know we're doing it. But we can take those promises that He has graciously given to us and turn them in such a way that we are demanding that He serve us accordingly. And now the master is the servant, and the servant is the master. We must not presume in that way. We must not presume in that way. The Lord is no servant in that sense, to be jerked around. He is no good old buddy. He is no hired expert that we can just you know get consultation when it's convenient. No, He's the Lord God Almighty. We must not presume upon His promises, nor must we even presume upon our security. Yes, yes. Don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. Yes. Because of the finished work of Jesus, we are and forever will be His adopted sons and daughters, and nothing can change that. Nothing can undo that, but relationally speaking, we ought not ought not to presume upon that. Does that make sense? We ought not to presume upon that, presuming upon these promises, presuming upon our security, but rather the emphasis of this text is the stance of the servant, not presuming, but depending. Not presuming, but depending. The, the, image, the, the image here is of, of two different parties, the master, the servant, the mistress and the maidservant, one party is in a position to provide for the other, and the other party is looking to the first for all that they lack, for all that they lack, which is pretty much everything. The the context is really, when when you look at this, it's not so much the servant or the maidservant looking to the master or the mistress for orders and instruction. That's not actually what's going on here. It's looking for provision and relief in the context of Psalm 123. So, the meaning, the significance of that for us is, this is to be our posture before the Lord, looking to Him. Leaning into Him. This is to be our posture. This is the song that we need to learn to sing. Psalm 123. Looking, leaning upon Him, trustingly with all that we are for all that we need. And again, this is part of what we're seeing here of a gospel response to opposition to the gospel. And a significant part of that has to do with this stance of a servant. Now, you think about this, and you really start running down, uh, just just unfolding this in your mind, where this could go, and you begin to realize how otherworldly this is. How otherworldly such a response as this would be. I mean, what is our typical response? When you experience contempt, scorn, derision, low-grade, high-grade, whatever it may be, our natural response is nothing like this. Our natural response is to get back, strike back, get what is ours. Right? That's our natural response. And the result of that is, is, is what? It feeds the beast, it fuels the machine, it keeps it going of the cycle. I hurt you, you hurt me. You hurt me, I hurt you. In whatever circumstance that may be, overtly, covertly, cold war, hot war, passive or active aggressive, you fill in the blank. But that's what happens. We do this, what comes naturally, it fuels and feeds the beast and keeps that vicious cycle going. Friends, the gospel is the one thing that can stop that cycle in its ugly tracks, It's the one hope this world has, this otherworldly approach, this otherworldly way. But how you say, how can that be? By listening, by trusting, by believing the Lord's word when He says, My child, my servant, my dear one, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, not yours says the Lord. You believe that, you take to that heart to heart and act on that, and that will break the cycle. And you say, but how can I do that? How can I believe that that's actually true? How can I trust, how can I know that He will actually do justly? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Do you want to see how seriously our God takes sin? Yes, you can look to the cross, and of course, it's a demonstration of His love and His mercy and His grace. But it is also a demonstration and a showing forth of His holiness and His justice. He will deal with it in the best way, in the only way that He can. That, friends, is what frees us. That's how you can know. That's how you can trust Him. That's how you can lay it down. That's how you can leave it in his hands, and that's what will break the cycle. The gospel, a gospel response to opposition, to contempt, to scorn, is the only thing that can break that vicious cycle. Does it sound otherworldly? It should. It is. And it's the only hope this world has. So, we should expect opposition to the gospel, but our response must be shaped by the gospel. That brings us to the third and final point. Not only do we see something of our stance towards, again, the other party, our stance even towards the Lord Himself, but now what is it that we're crying out for? What is it that we need? Three times, again, in the poetry, the repetition, the emphasis, three times we see it here. Verses 2 and 3, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. So, you know, in verses 1 and 2, he's speaking of the need for mercy. Verses 3 and 4, he is pleading for it. Mercy, mercy mercy. What does this mean? What, is this, what are we speaking of when we speak of this mercy? Well, generally speaking, it's referring to help given to those who are in need. Generally speaking, we could describe this mercy as compassion in action. This, word, this particular word in the Hebrew that we're translating mercy in, and the English translated several words, Words in the Hebrew as mercy. This one has an emphasis of care, um, aid rendered by a superior to an inferior. Just, just in the sense of you know power, levels of power and influence from a superior to an inferior. That's utterly undeserved. That's utterly undeserved. That's what we're to cry out for. That's what we need. Generally speaking, that's what we always need. Now, specifically. In terms of this passage, in terms of this text, what is it that they're crying out for? What is it we're being encouraged to cry out for? For relief. Relief from the contempt, the scorn, the derision, and the despising. Relief that it would come to an end. Mercy. But not just that. Not just that it would come to an end, but that we would be equipped as we wait to respond in the right way and not in the way that we otherwise would. Oh, Lord, have mercy. See how manifold this mercy is, how rich it is, how deep it is, how necessary, how vital it, it is, that it would come to an end and He would enable us as we wait to, to stay the course. Where does it come from, this mercy? Just really, It's important to be explicit here. We've got to be clear here. Where does this come from? Now, I don't know if you, you notice this, but four times. There's so, so much repetition in this psalm. It's amazing. You might think it's only six words. But, but, but eyes, eyes are mentioned four times. Did you notice that? And twice, the language is used, the phrasing used of, of looking, of looking. Clearly, there's a gaze, a focus <laughs> That's being spoken of here. Well, where is this gaze? Where is this focus? Not on ourselves. Not on what we've got to bring to the table. Not on what we can muster up. And not to anyone else. But to the Lord Himself. As you see there in verse 1. To you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. To the Almighty One, the King of creation, The Lord himself, who has no rivals, not in terms of his power or his faithfulness to us, his people, to the covenant God. We look and we lean into him as his subjects, as his servants, for not only saving grace, but serving grace. Looking and leaning completely into him, this gospel response This gospel response to the opposition that we encounter, part of that entails crying out to Him for such mercy, and oh, how we need it more than we know. One of the most painful things I have ever heard said were these words. I don't need your blank, blank, blank charity. I don't need your charity. Have you ever heard that? Ever been on the receiving end of or something like that? It's it's painful. It's wounding because of course there's a, there is a sense of like personal rejection right in that. But it's not just that. It's it's also it's not just that it's painful, it's that you, in that moment you realize how foolish this other person is. They can't see how they need help. They need help so badly, they can't admit they need the help. And that makes it all the worse. And so the pain just doubles down. It just doubles down. It just feels, just feels awful. Friends, Um. Mercy is one of God's attributes. It's an essential part of who he is. Mercy. Need is one of ours. As finite creatures and fallen sinners. Mercy. Is one of the key attributes of the living God, and need is one of ours. We must hold those two things together, even, and I'll say, especially when it's hard. And it's hard now, isn't it? These are divided days, like name it. These are divided days, fractured times. We are splintered in basically every level of our understanding regarding a global pandemic. We are quibbling about essential details when it comes to facing, dealing, countering racial injustice. And now we're fast on the fast track into an election cycle that if you think is going to be easy... And pleasant, you are grossly deluded. Now, I am not gonna stand up here and say that these times are unprecedented. I'm not gonna say that. I don't know that that's actually true. There's a lot of days behind us, so I'm not quite sure if that's actually true. But I will say it's hard. Unprecedented or not. And division is rife there is so much at stake and by that i don't mean political agendas or cultural shifts I, that's not what i mean i mean gospel witness there is so much at stake right now how will god's people how will the church respond can i just put it this way thinking about psalm 123 where are you looking? Where are you looking? To what God are you looking? Are we looking? Do we know our need for mercy, as the Psalm speaks of here, for saving and serving grace? to be able to respond in this otherworldly way? Do we recognize truly how unnatural, how otherworldly this is and how desperate we all are for His mercy to be able to respond in even some poor way like this? Where are we looking? Where is our gaze? Do we see truly that this is the only way that the cycle can be broken and it's the incumbent on God's people to stop fueling the cycle and rather be a part of ending it and rather be a part of ending it opposition to the gospel we should expect that but by the same token by the same token our response to that opposition has to be shaped by the gospel. Let me end with this simply a point uh, as we're bringing this to a close. Restoring and reclaiming something is, is rarely easy, right? Restoring and reclaiming things are rarely easy. If you've ever done a, a, a refurbishment on a, on a car or a house, reclaiming, restoring things are never easy. Those of us who have had braces, right? Or maybe some of you do or some of you are, or, or will if you're young enough. You know the pain that comes with those visits to the orthodontist, right? Because they are, they're tightening those braces. Well, I mean, that should be expected because what are they doing? They're actually, I hate to tell you, reshaping your mouth. You should expect some pain to come with that. Uh, so sometimes the, uh, the physical therapy that comes in the wake of a surgery repairing an injury can be tremendously painful as well. Some of you know a few years ago I ripped an ACL playing in an adult soccer league. And uh, I can remember after the surgery, just a, less than a week after the surgery, there I was under the, I'll call care, I felt, thought it was more torture, uh, of the physical therapist as they were having me bend that knee to begin to reclaim strength and and flexibility and mobility of that knee. I'm not making this up. The physical therapy was far, far worse than the actual injury itself. There was no comparison between the two. You know, restoring and reclaiming things is never easy. Living out the gospel, we should expect kingdom resistance in this broken, fallen world as broken, fallen people around us and even within us as well. You think of the struggle that comes in working through things in a difficult relationship learning, perhaps even for the first time, what biblical repentance, confession, and forgiveness really is. That's not easy. Or on a broader scale, as we consider the ways that the kingdom of Satan is asserting and pressing into the affairs of this world, and we desire, as God's people, to move against, to go against the tide of the sorrows caused by diseases of so many different kinds, mental and physical, or pressing into the pain of empty lives and the struggles of broken relationships or, or getting up in the face of poverty and injustice and, yes, racism. Friends, we should expect a stubborn fight on every one of those fronts. Around and within all of us. And in this opposition that we experience to the gospel, how will we respond? Psalm 123 and the rest of the Bible makes it very clear. In a way that is shaped by the gospel. Can we pray? Lord, our our brother Peter warned us not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us. Lord, you spoke directly to us and said that the servant is not above his master. We see examples of this all through the Old and New Testament, all through church history. We must expect, we'd be foolish not to expect opposition to the gospel in a fallen world that is in rebellion against you. We are not in a, we are not, we are not owed, we are not owed a struggle-free life of ease and we do not live in a luxury theme park. We ought to expect the struggle. We ought to expect the opposition, again, all around and even within us. So we pray that You'd help us to see and reckon with the reality that opposition can come with faces. And as that comes, we pray that You'd help us to sing the song of Psalm 123, recognizing the nuances of what we see here in terms of the contempt, the stance of the servant, And the need that we have for mercy, oh, would You have mercy. Would You do Your work within our hearts, within us, in us, and therein, by Your mercy, through us. We pray these things in Your name, Jesus. Amen.